0: Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you again. This is Lindsay.
1: And this is Kira.
0: And here we are uh it's getting to be the end of the year 2021 and man i'm feeling feeling all the feels of the end (laughs) of the year (laughs) how are you doing
1: i'm good i'm good i yes this will i think this will post um probably right after the new year and so yeah i'm definitely feeling like interesting seasonal transition um you know looking back at Another crazy year with a lot of pandemic context, but also a lot of other exciting things. And there's starting to be all the end of year lists and all the beginning of year, I don't know promises, <laughs> things like that so it's kind of a <laughs> funny time of year for sure.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. I haven't seen any end of the year lists. I'm looking forward to that. Um, I don't know. I I like a good list, but also I just haven't had time to read the news recently, so I have no idea what's going on. You are a little busy, Lindsay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know if you all have ever felt this, but like starting a new job um you find out what sort of the ebbs and flows of the job are and it turns out that um living future is a very busy place at the end of the year because Uh we're one of those organizations where we have performance reviews at the end of the year and we have budget at the end of the year we just launched the website for living future the conference for 2022 so like there's a million things going on there too so it's just it is a lot and i'm used to just being one of those people that like yeah. I like to make candy at Christmas time. I like to, you know, I have all of these holiday um, traditions that I do in my life outside of work. And some of them have been slightly compromised, which, um, yes. you know, it's a new job.
1: Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> so getting used to the rhythms of a new, a new place um, yeah. for sure. Well, there has been, yeah. as most people, uh, most listeners know, I have, I am um involved with the American Institute of Architects in a few ways, and there has been some news on that from them lately that I um, felt like it would be fun to share here um, simply because it crosses some of our spheres. They announced the gold medalists for 2022 are Angie Brooks and Larry Scarpa of Brooks Scarpa out of LA, um, which is really exciting. It's really fun to see that firm Um, those people get that um, honor. Um, They've really put climate and social issues, um, such as housing at the center of their design focused practice and they really embody advocacy as well. And I'm just so excited about that. And um, AIA also announced the firm award for 2022 will go to Mass Design Group, which is super exciting. Um, Big shout out to all the Mass Design Group team, including Katie Swenson, who we have um, had on as a guest on this show a while back, um, so that's kind of fun, exciting. It's news so fun, hear.
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, we talk about this sometimes, but um, it's just really a delightful thing when uh, awards are given in that sort of holistic way. That um, I don't know. I don't want to get on a soapbox, but um, I, I believe in design incorporating social and environmental responsibility and that design excellence should embody all of those things and not just um and not just the design work itself and in part because we've seen i mean mass design group works and scarper they're just such great examples of organization of of, of designers who show that these do not conflict with each other right uh you know so it's like the
1: true integration piece is really Huge. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I just appreciate that they are there to show us that uh none of us need to uh deflate the other ones um you know, yeah, m- goals of impacting the world, you know. We, Absolutely. We
1: all, Absolutely. You know. And um I will I will also say that um it's actually a perfect segue to mention who our guest is for today um because I know our guest has some thoughts about Mass Design Group. Um, we are so excited to have Susan sanazi with us today. And Susan um, really helped lift up Mass Design Group early on um, and uh, gave them a uh, Game Changers Award in, I think it was 2011, and invited um, them to speak at um, one of the first state of design conferences that she organized and has really brought them many voices, Michael Murphy and others, other voices from that um, firm um, out into the public and into the conversation again and again. So Susan, welcome, and thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you. It was amazing for me to be involved. I have to say the highlights of my life are the people that I know and the work that I have seen. So that was 30 years of excitement. No, I'm sitting (laughs) alone and listening to pods.
1: That's great. That's great. Well, let me give a little background for those that um, maybe are not as familiar with Susan, um, and we'll I'll do a quick intro, and then we'll get jump into some questions. Um, Susan Sanazi is one of the best known design critics and editors of the past 40 years. She became editor of Metropolis Magazine in 1986, and that publication became one of the most expansive design publications in the American media landscape. Metropolis was one of the first American design magazines to explore sustainability as part of design in the 1990s. And in 2003, Susan and her team published the Architects Pollute issue about Ed Mezria's call for the profession to dramatically cut emissions, elevating his voice that would have long ripple effects. And in fact, still are today. Um, And I have to add a personal note, Um, I was an editor on Susan's team for some years in the 1990s, including when we put together issues like Seeds of Sustainability and Just Add Water. And I'm really, really delighted to have my mentor and friend on the podcast today. So welcome, Susan. And um, just to get us started, um, if you could tell us a little bit about how and why you got involved in design and criticism and magazines and and how you got interested in sustainability as part
2: of that. I'll try to keep it brief, but I have to tell you that it starts when you're a kid, you know, you know that, right? You know that, (laughs) and you know that from everybody. So I was always a kid who was drawing, painting, reading, uh, writing. So it was, it was something that I loved. And this was back in communist Hungary when I, when I only spoke Hungarian. So this was in grade school. And so, so that you know that all my watercolors were on the walls all the time because I was able to capture that sheen on the brass bowl. So um, it was one of those things that it was an ingrained interest in the beauty of design and architecture and art because later on, as I followed up on my childhood interest in English here in the United States, Then I began to see art history and art history, the best of art history has architecture and design included. So I thought, wow, this is the place to go. And then I wanted to, uh, uh, I I was living in New York, New New Jersey, when we were, we settled in the United States. And uh, I wanted to come into the city because publishing was going on here. So uh, I went to some agencies. And can I tell you about the pornography magazine?
0: Yes, of course you can.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You can tell us about anything you want, Susan. (laughs) I was so eager to be hired by a magazine that I went to an agency and I was sent out very enthusiastically to this new magazine that was the hot magazine. So I show up in this place, which was full of pot smoke and these weird people kind of uh, moving around in very unsure ways. And I thought, well, this is very interesting. And of course, you know, I'm a Jersey kid, so I have no idea what's going on in the big city. So, uh, and, uh, and it turned out the editor showed me a copy of the magazine and I was floored. It was a porno magazine. And I said, well, what would I do here? And he said, well, you'd be writing the letters to the editor.
0: Oh, my gosh.
2: (laughs) One of my rules, of course, you, you, you always accept the fact that readers write and editors respond. And this is a dialogue, correct? So and then he said, and you're hired and you start on Monday. And he was done with me. So I left and I got on the bus to Jersey and I said, I can't do this. I can't. So I got home, I called him up right away, and I said, I'm sorry, I can't come to work for you. This is against all of my moral compass, all that my moral compass can uh, uh, focus on, because this is not, I'm not interested in this, I can't do this. So that, thank God I escaped it, because I don't know where I would have landed. I mean, you know, some uh, uh, dancer in some, some club or something. So... Uh, can you imagine Kira me? So in any case, um, <laughs> in any case, uh, I went back to another agency and they sent me out to a big company that owned a lot of magazines. So the first magazine that hired me was a vending management magazine. We were writing about vending machines. That was very interesting to me because I never used a vending machine. I didn't know what it was. So I started Uh, thinking about this this subject, but of course it was not my subject, but what was really fortunate, and this is the the kind of uh, career basing uh, that happens if you land in the right place. The managing editor taught me everything about producing a magazine, deadlines, writers, editing, writing, layouts, everything that you wanted to know about magazines. So the subject I didn't care about, but the process, it was fascinating. And I thought, okay, I was sold. I want the magazine. I really do want magazines. And then that same company owned uh, Modern Photography. So Modern Photography hired uh, me after that. uh, the personnel director knew I was itching to uh, do something much more interesting. So whenever something came up, she would call me and she said, check this out. So I checked out uh, modern photography and I thought, this is great. It's photography, it's beauty, it's a skill. So, and they were uh, testing, more, more testing equipment than anything else. So they allowed me to test the equipment and the the uh, camera, so I took a lot of pictures, I learned lighting, I learned composition, and uh, so it was really a really great uh, way to uh, uh, get introduced to a visual magazine, and then, um, but then I couldn't take it anymore. So I went back to Jersey and got my master's in modern European history. And then when I came back, there was a big crash on the marketplace. There were no jobs. So I went back to the company and uh, they had just bought interiors magazine, which was interior design, but it was architecture, of design. It had a social connection. It was a much broader idea of how we talk about design than the usual design magazine. So this was my, this was, I found my place. I found my place and the the editor-in-chief, Olga Geft, who was really became my mentor. But first she was my torturer because she would stand behind me and dictate as I was trying to fumble on the computer. And she had this high voice and she would say, Sue, you will never be an, a writer, your, your English is your second language and y- there's no way that you can write. And I made a turnaround from my miserable computer and I said, Olga, English was your third language and you write like an angel. Let me try. She shut up. She was my mentor from then on, and we were the best friends after she retired. And we always kept in in, uh, touch because I love the subject. And interiors actually told me to love architecture, product design, interior design, and its context in society. It's politics, it's planning issues. It's uh, governing issues, everything, everything, not just the actual practice. So when Metropolis came along, they knew what I did because they watched what I did at Metropolis. And the publisher, Horace Habermeyer, wanted me to write for Metropolis for for a couple of years. And then when his editor left, he he called me right away and uh, asked me to come in to see him. And uh, Horace Havemeyer, he was the heir to the domino sugar fortune and loved architecture, literally loved architecture and design and art. I mean, this was a family that knew uh, they had the largest impressionist collection in America. So I, I landed in the place where I actually needed to be. And in fact, the day that I started, the architect, Alan Buxbaum, who was a, who became a friend, and unfortunately, he died of AIDS very early on. And he called me, and he said, you're in the right place. Good luck. We'll talk later. And so, wow, I thought this is like the best thing, because uh, Alan was the one who taught me about Tron Walls, you know, the solar architecture, the moves in art, uh, solar architecture, because he was already practicing it. So... Anyway, that was the beginning of my metropolis run the forty years. and uh, and i I was fascinated by the connection between all scales of design. And I was fascinated by the fact that none of them talk to each other. I mean, this is and this is not uh, uh, re- really has figured out yet because because it's one of those things where, uh, you know, I mean, interior designers talk to interior designers, they'll talk to architects, but the architects downgrade them because they still think that they just spec carpet and all of that. So there's there's a there's a, a very loose connection between the professions. And I always thought that the designed environment would be so enriched if they actually collaborated, and it actually collaborated on what was made, how it was made, how it was, made, how it was recycled what uh, what happened uh, when you used it how you uh, how you got the most out of the use and how do you how do you rethought of it when you were done with it so it's not we weren't we shouldn't be producing garbage of beautifully designed pieces just like we shouldn't be producing garbage anywhere and by the way and and i'm going to stop the hungarian uh, reference after this but but i learned how to recycle in poor communist hungary because there was nothing thrown out nothing the food scraps went to the pig to fatten up for the uh, for the next year's uh, poor protein the birds ate the seeds the the little farm animals ate the rest of the refuse and so it was one of those things that just stayed with me forever it's like why are we throwing all of this stuff out i d- i couldn't understand it and it, it bothered me all along and it still does because i think we produce more garbage than any any nation on earth
0: yeah i i love this susan i love the sort of place the logic and just like the i don't know the worldview that you brought to um, to the work and how, you know, how you started approaching that, um, I don't know, the idea that we have come to think of as sustainability in architecture, but from this more much more profound and fundamental way. Um, I, so there's so much more that we could ask you about your journey. <laughs> I am fascinated by the porn magazine story. Thank you for that. Um, but we're going to keep going through all of these questions we want to talk to you about. And I, I, I'm particularly excited about this one around what you're pr- most proud of accomplishing in your work life. Um, I just imagine it must be so hard for you to answer that because of everything you've accomplished and had a chance to do. But but what stands out to you in, in your career um, as as your proudest moments?
2: Well, I think the, the things that the people that uh, you guys mentioned, uh, the mass design group, the fact that they came to us and gave us an incredibly rich story that, uh, and they didn't give us the story, they told us about the story. And then we were always very, very careful to hire the very best design writers who uh, some people were working for The Times as critics, some people were working, not, not so much for design magazines because you got a kind of uh, desiccated writing when you work with uh, design magazine writers. But uh, people who were who actually had a larger worldview, for instance, I, Ada Louise Huxtable my, was my favorite writer on architecture because she connected everything. So mass design was a, a, an amazing find Ed Masria was like the eye-opener, and he he actually wrote a piece that he sent us. And of course, we wouldn't publish that piece because we had better standards, you know, we were journalists. So, and this this was great because my managing editor at that time, Martin Peterson, loved really well-written pieces. In fact, he was my very best editor. I, I relied on him because he would tweak it a little and it would always make it Better, much better. So, uh, and he hired amazing writers. And uh, so uh, we told these stories on the basis of what the architects presented to us, but showing their work. And uh, showing the connections to the larger world of design, so that so that it was told as a more inclusive idea of design. So I'm very proud of those two. And of course, you know, and then and then uh, people that I really liked also, like I just uh, um, found out out about a, a work that Rick Cook is doing, uh, who was with the. Um, uh, Cook and Fox, it, it's still called Cook and Fox. And, uh, and they were doing very good hands-on Uh, sustainable work. Like a lot of people are, by the way. I mean, from your conversations, you know that a lot of people are doing wonderful things. And uh, whatever level that they're working on, whether in architecture firms or development or or management or anything. So there's a lot of great knowledge that has developed along the years since I've been observing this. And since uh, I've been looking at the uh, U.S. Green Building Council and going to all their uh, conventions and the enormous growth of all of those uh, uh, areas. So I think it's, it's a really interesting thing that is happening now. So Rick, for instance, Rick Cook is apparently working in New York on, a, on connecting a new building that is being developed by Heinz. And uh, connecting to an Art Deco building on the near the site, so that that perked me up because I've been trying to think that how are we going to in New York City and in city cities like New York, how are we going to re re uh, use some of the buildings, not just the beautiful ones, what, but whatever is capable of surviving, how do we reuse them and make them part of the new building stock? Because we can't throw this stuff out. The old Hungarian uh, jumps out at me and no, no garbage, please, please, no. And so, because by the way, when I went back to visit, uh, when I was 21, they were dis- uh, dismantling the barn uh, brick by brick, and I said, "Well, what are you guys doing?" And and they said, "Well, we're building a house for our kids." So they they uh, again. It was it was a beautiful little house that they built from those uh, those uh, bricks that wow. were holding up the barn. So, I mean, this is, this is uh, the the idea that has stuck with me and I never gave it up. And whenever I found it, I was very happy and, and I found it a lot. So it's not like I've been frustrated uh, with the architecture, but then when the big um, behemoth building started going up, that's when I went bonkers because mm-hmm. I have to, I have to say, I just, that was the worst part of the architectural experience that I had because they did not pay attention to temperature, to energy use. And then I would visit all these architectural offices in this big high rises everywhere in the United States. And I'm in uh, Houston, for instance, and in a large architecture firm. And I go in and the women, are at their desks with pashmina shawls wrapped around them because it's so cold in there they're dying of the cold and then I said well you're freezing and then they would point to the little heater under the desk so okay mm-hmm. so cooled it down but you heated it up because people were freezing so that these things I notice and I care about and if I don't see it I get very angry and and uh, you know and then of course when we put the architects pollute on the cover. That was when I was uh, attacked, not physically, but I was constantly like pilloried and oh how dare you, we don't do that, we don't pollute. Well, show me. And so uh, but it was it was really really interesting. So all of these foundations carried on with me for for a very long time and uh, the architecture world and the design world has given me a chance to test them to think about them to to speak about people who actually were able to do the things that I loved and make beautiful beautiful buildings although I have to say this 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 I must to uh, mention again because this, these are some of the flaws that I picked up in the in the design firm firms like um, you know the the first hospital that Mass Design in Rwanda used volcanic stone that they found uh, when they were trying to reclaim the land and they made bricks from volcanic stone and this one top designer looks at the building and she said oh how ugly. Okay. Okay. And then the second example, I came back from Europe, uh, from Italy, and I received from uh, the the woman that we were living with, I received a beautiful little uh, bag of of lavender. And I pulled it out. I was having uh, lunch with these uh, top designers. And I pulled it out and I said, smell this. And the woman, the designer, didn't smell it. She says, I know how to redesign that bag. And I thought I I thought I was going to have a heart attack because she missed the whole point. It's smelling the lavender. <laughs> anyway, so there there you go. I mean uh, I think I think the the fortunate thing was that this this thing that ingrained in me as a child that uh, you know, it was no unlimited access to everything, but you had to watch everything that you spent it on. And yet I read a million books. I uh, did all of that work. I had great friends. I, I was, you know, I mean, I didn't miss anything, but this idea of this, this really insane consumer world that forced people into behaviors that we're now beginning to see that it's not making us happy so so and i'm so glad that i was there before before covid and before all of all of the, what that's happened uh, reminded us that that's not the that's not the direction to take mm,
0: yeah yeah i i love this and i love that your role as a journalist has enabled you to sort of help the design industry or community understand what's important you know like this idea of the lavender that there's a role that that your writing has has played in in helping to sort of frame the discussions and keep people thinking about okay, like what are we actually you know what are we talking about? What is the point of all of this? And um, and along those lines, I want to ask you about teaching, um, in particular ethics at Parsons. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your work there and what teaching has been for you?
2: So so uh, we. Uh, actually, when the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, was formed, uh, uh, Parsons uh, and Pratt uh, asked me to ask us to uh, uh, report on it and report on the proceedings and then write. The, and we wrote stories on, on the ADA accessibility of, uh, uh, you know, any kind of physical, mental disabilities, because we were seeing how people were excluded. I mean, you're you're standing, you're, you're stuck on the sidewalk and you can't go anywhere if you're in a wheelchair so you can't go to a restaurant and then i started playing i started thinking about that too and i everywhere i went i would uh, sort of say to myself well what it, what would it be like if i were in a chair what would it be like if i were on crutches i could not go to those restaurants i could not go up and down the big stairs i could not and then when uh, uh, this uh, um, what what was the name of that violinist? Itzhak Perlman. Uh, when Itzhak Perlman uh, talked at the uh, ADA conference, he said, "I was invited to to uh, play a concert at Carnegie Hall or at at Lincoln Center, and they had to the a man had to pick me up and carry me up the stairs." And I thought, "And here's this beautiful man." Who cannot walk, but he is worth 10 million more than anybody else in that room. And he's a baby. He's degraded to a helpless child. And I thought, this is insane. We can't keep doing this. So the ADA was one, ADA was the first one, the social. Uh, Mission, and uh, then that that opened me up more and more to sustainability because that was uh, uh, you know being kind to humanity and the built in the built world in a much more sensitive way. So uh, all of that was very very important to me, and and uh, I uh, had worked with some people at uh, uh, Parsons and uh, Jean Gardner. Kira's famous uh, teacher was working there. And I think she was the one who put them up, uh, put me up for, I don't know if she was the one, but she must have mentioned me because Parsons, uh, called from the Dean's office, and they wanted somebody to teach ethics to designers. I was already teaching design history because, as you know, I'm very much interested in history, and so I studied design history. When they, when Parsons asked me to uh, uh, teach design history, that was the, my first opportunity at teaching, and I really liked it, and uh, it was very difficult because half of the class couldn't care less. Half of them were great, so I uh I wasn't a great teacher. I just talked to the ones that were interested, the rest that were sitting there looking bored. What, what am I gonna do with them? I mean, if you're not engaged, you don't care, get out, you know, collect garbage, do anything. So so in any case, I was teaching the uh the design history class, and then uh when the Enron scandal happened everybody was talking about well how do we teach ethics to designers so they called me and they said would you like to develop a course on ethics and i thought oh yes and you know i i have this tendency to say yes and then oh my god what did i get myself into but it was the best thing because it happened at the end of the fall semester uh and the spring semester and the the um uh, vacation was coming. Well, I wasn't on vacation, but I, uh, you know, and I wasn't as busy in the summer months, though. So, so I spent the summer in all my free time preparing for the ethics class, and so I read a huge bunch of books, and then, then uh, I I started thinking that, uh, you know, this can't be, and I I looked at yeah. I'm gonna go back to this because the way ethics were talked about in in, uh, design uh, and architecture was you do not go after a job that your colleague is looking, going for. I mean, these kind of little social peddling things to me. And I thought, and nobody cares about anything else. And then I said, okay, What we're going to do in this ethics class is have an idea that you have a series of at least five responsibilities. Ethics is all about responsible behavior. And it starts, the first thing, it starts with the earth. Your responsibility as a designer, as a human being, as a family, as a community is to the health of the earth because without that, we're dead. And then, and I didn't. We didn't even talk this seriously about, uh, uh, you know, climate change and all of that. But we were talking about it, and I was aware of it. So, so, and then, and then the next area was the region. Where are you working? What are the customs? Who are the people? What is the community? Uh, how does the community relate to the design, and how does the designer relate to the community? Uh, the uh the materiality of the place what's what's there so that uh you can actually think about uh, the world that you design that belongs there and not some sort of hokey way i mean uh it, it design didn't used to be hokey when people understood where the sun came from and where the winds blew from and what the climate was so and then and then the last uh, uh area of, of uh, responsibility was to your first yourself and your family. So your own little social connectivity, but your your own responsibility. And that worked, that worked because, uh, you know, because n- nobody wanted to deal with uh, ethics as a designer. I mean, uh, the fashion uh, students that signed up, and at the end, uh, like half of the class was fashion students because they made it a requirement. This was a senior seminar. And uh, they they, uh, told me, we don't care. We don't care about this. We work in the most unethical business and we can't do anything and we don't want to listen. So they would all sit there and pull their turtlenecks up to their noses and sat there like turtles and just stared at me. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I said, "Okay, stare at me, because there was this segment of the class that was incredible. They figured out how to use materials that were not poisonous, invent new materials, how to uh, uh, deal with uh, users who really needed design, like uh, poor women who needed to be dressed really well for a job interview and not be part of their personal presentation. I mean, they did these wonderful, wonderful uh, programs. And I thought, well, okay, five of them out of 25, that's pretty good. And, you know, and and I know, I know, and uh, my fellow teachers would say, well, you know, you have to get everybody involved. I don't give a damn about these idiots yeah i'm sorry i'm sorry I mean this is this is they don't care about anything but passing through. I mean they really don't care about what the ethical world teaches you to pay attention to so, and I taught that for 10 years, and when the fashion department invaded my class. And I called my supervisor and I said I'm, I'm sorry I can't do this anymore that's it's just it's destroying me. They don't care they I don't I can't be with people who don't care i've been I always work with people my editors at Metropolis. The some of the best designers, the, some of the designers, we did stories on they had this ethical caring nature about humanity about the earth about materiality and so. I, you know, life is too short to be spending it on people who who will never learn. And so, uh, Susan,
1: Susan, I must say one thing about that is that I I suspect that you touched more of those people than you know, even yeah. if they were not fully present and engaged, you know, in a way that was rewarding to you at the time. I suspect that some of those those people who presented as not caring probably absorbed a little bit more than you think and maybe later thought more more about it and maybe even you know came away with with um, a lot from that from those courses. (laughs)
2: I think you're right. I think there were a couple of them that started emailing me uh, later on, and uh, they had very interesting jobs and they were doing some some very good work. And there were some that remained friends forever. I mean, I have one industrial designer in Michigan, one young man who uh, he and his wife have been my second uh, children. and. Uh, and it's it's it was because because we we understood each other and they have strong ethical compasses with which they use in their design work. So so and I think those were rewarding to me because you know the, those two call me their design mom. So uh, in in any case, I don't know. I think yes, you're right, Kira, but uh yeah i always feel a little bit guilty for uh, you know not even trying i mean there were some some things where i would show up and knock on the desk and hello uh, they no they they just didn't want to pay attention because they knew that i was not going to fail them and they knew that it was a requirement so they'll skate through and uh nothing nothing happened so anyway but that was I mean, I have to say, when I talk about what I did, and especially ethics and design history and the magazine, oh, and then I haven't even mentioned my post 9-11 civic group. I don't know if you guys want to know about that, but that, I mean, the things that I was able to do because I was the editor-in-chief of Metropolis, I I will never, ever forget that. and and. I I can't I can't believe that it happened.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's that's amazing. There's so much there, and I, uh, yeah, I love. I think Kira and I both love this idea of having been a design mom for people. We could talk about that a lot more. Um, but there's actually one thing about this teaching experience. Um, it makes me want to ask you, a, a question that we often engage in in our podcast is just about the transformations that we're trying to achieve in the building industry or in the design industry. And um, I want to know whether you think we're making the kind of progress we need to make? Or where you know, where do you think we're making the best progress? Where do you think we haven't made enough progress um, in transforming how we design how we build?
2: Well, you know, I had, a, I had, among other things, I had a chance to go to design schools all over the country, and uh, experience how how they were teaching design, from industrial design to architecture to landscape, because I was part of the. Crits graduate graduate also uh, I was part of the crits of the final project sometimes sometimes I just visited sometimes I just uh, was part of the classroom, so I was, I was very much interested in all of this, and the 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 thing that was interesting to me is when I was in uh, architecture crits. Uh, they stopped the attack crits you know the old attack crits uh, it's like when who was it uh, peter eisenman and who uh, who was it that would attack the students and really denigrate the work and that and i uh there was a time when they used to do that and i told the teachers i don't want to attack anybody that's not going to help anybody i would like to ask questions how does it work? Why do you think it work? Why why is it valuable? How is it carrying your your uh, uh, mission forward? And. Uh, uh, after a while, and it, it wasn't just me, I'm sure a lot of people hated those crits because you know, there's even that great um, uh, Moshe Safdie's son, I, I can't remember the kid's first name, uh, he did, he wrote these plays, uh, and there's this one play about art the architecture uh, uh, architectural criticism that actually literally uh, strips the young woman bare because it was so brutal so i mean it was it was just I, I don't know what it was called i wish that i remembered because i'd love to pass that on and it's uh, it is played once in a while but but in any case that was what i um i i don't know i mean it just it just felt like i needed to do this uh this kind of supportive thoughtful, questioning, supportive, you know, the idea that your work is important, you are important, so I think I stopped going uh, before COVID and uh, a couple of years before COVID, so I don't know, but I have seen the youth movement, and it certainly is in design schools. And friends of mine who teach say that it is, uh, some of their students, although it's not universal, but it is being asked. Although when I was in uh, uh, industrial design classes, they were still designing those great, beautiful computer rendering with the sheen on the side of the glass. And I'm thinking, okay, but what's the question? Yeah. How do we, How does this become a a recycled product? How do we reuse? What are we using to uh, uh, finish it? What kind of poison are we putting into the earth when you'd want to make that sheen happen? And I thought it was not part of the conversation. I think that it is now. And fortunately, Brian Bell put together this wonderful book of teachings uh, that he asked me to write the afterword for, and um, it's about teaching uh, in a uh, in an architecture school where you talk about community, you talk about uh, region, where you talk about uh, uh, pulling in the wisdom of the people who are using the place. I mean, you know, you're one of your. Um, conversation as Liz Ogbu has been doing this uh, since she started, uh, since she left architecture school. So, I mean, she's one of the few ones who actually started with that without anybody telling her because she saw the need. And I think that was, that's one of the, uh, she kept me going on this idea that community involvement is key. In especially in architecture work, because they are the ones that will either be helped by it or suffer from it. And I would always say, you know, when architects uh, would say, "Yeah, look at look at what I uh, what I want to show you," and I said, "Okay, will it make me happy or will I suffer from it?" And you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that was not nice, but I got to the point where I didn't care because there were so many places that just didn't pay attention to me. I mean, and I think we're beginning to see more and more architects talking about this, certainly the younger ones are certainly you know mass mass design is at that intermediary group who kind of lay down the promise of what's coming because. Actually, Michael is teaching now and he's not teaching like architects used to be taught, he is teaching like Michael should be teaching and uh, his idea about architecture so so i think that's very hopeful he's only one i would like to know of more but i don't know if they don't talk about it don't want to talk about it but i think people who are at that firm are spreading out and doing more and more of that work uh, that kind of community oriented environmental oriented culture oriented design and it's you know, I think I think we went wrong when uh, when we adapted uh, modernism. And if we adapted Gropius's idea of modernism, I think we'd be in a much better position because he was he was he was another Eastern European and I recognized that uh, that classical education that my parents went through and he went through, and and he understood the the connections between place and people and culture. And it was, you know, and he was a chauvinist like any other man of his age. I mean, you know, women are the beautiful sex and men are the strong sex. And, you know, and he said stupid things like that. But the point is that, you know, I forgave him. I forgave him that because he had a really big idea of what to do with beautiful product design, For the industrial age, that's why he moved the Bauhaus to the to the place where the Junkers planes were. Uh, manufactured because this was technology at its height and uh, the students could see the the planes uh, making their flights out of the factory every day and it's it's and that to me that kind of sensitivity to the world and sensitivity to a larger idea of where your work appears is what matters and whoever is teaching that and whoever is practicing that to me would be the designer of the 21st century and beyond. I love that Susan that that
1: just so demonstrated what I think so many of us really love about your writing specifically also your career at Metropolis just this whole synthesis of all those things um it was really that was just such a great little arc of conversation um so and I I wanted to lead that into a little question about um, whether there, what sort of, maybe to elaborate just a little bit about pockets of the design world that you think are the most fascinating right now. Um, I don't know, you mentioned community engagement and you mentioned Liz Obu's work. um, And so those are definitely, you know, sort of finally getting a little bit more attention, I think, the community side of things. What else in the design world now do you think is, you know, Intriguing, or 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 represents the kind of progress and the kind of synthesis, really, that you've been advocating for your whole career.
2: Well, I think I'm always asking, uh, you know, what do you know? Who's doing what? Who's connecting things? Who's who's trying to figure out how to build on something that we know without throwing it out, but really saying, okay, this 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 has value. And uh, so, I mean, I just heard this morning the, about Cook Fox. Working with uh, Gerald Hines, the developer, on a big New York project, and uh, there is the new building will have uh, uh, a, the kind of uh, um, energy system that, and I, I don't fully understand it yet because I haven't dug into it. But it sounds like the, the Trome wall concept is involved somehow to gather a, uh, the the power of the sun. In an area of the building that that power falls onto the concrete construction and that that. uh, uh, sort of lets the heat into the building in the winter and then there's a a ventilation system, which is much more organic on that building so Heinz is looking for this he's a developer, he pays the money. If you want to get paid and you want to make money as an architect, pay attention to the developers who have uh, people who have carbon experts. Heinz has a carbon expert, so I think to me those are those are the great signs of. Some things happening where people are saying, people of money are saying that this is important. I think also I was listening. Uh, you know, I'm a like right now I'm a pod fiend, so I listened to, listened to everything that was going on at uh, um, at COP in Glasgow. And, uh, and you know, there was a lot of uh, great conversation going, but then I heard these conversations, these interviews with people who were in charge of banking funds, uh, you know, putting out loans, making sure that the right projects were financed. And I have to say, those were the most important people to me because they said that, yes, we have to look at the carbon output and how do we draw away from it and what to how do we finance the new technology and then uh, so so that was that was really interesting uh and then i think uh also there's um, Let's see, who else was there? Oh, and then I heard, uh, and I I just kind of in fleeting, I was, uh, I heard about this uh, wonderful uh, landscape architecture, architecture firm. I mean, and I love it when the, the disciplines are together because usually it was the interior designer and the, the architect and the interior designer was the slave of the architect because she was a woman and he was a man. So, you know, I mean, that was the reality. And so we can't, we can't, that's not the, that's not our world anymore so but it was really interesting that that uh there are these possibilities for uh you know, for building on what we know. I mean, we have learned so much from Green Build, from LEED, from, uh, you know, all the things that were done. And, uh, you know, I mean, when it became part of the checkpoint system, then it lost its power. But the reality is nobody ever kind of um, evaluated what the thinking was behind it and how do you change your thinking. And that's that's my question right now is, what are you thinking about your existing materials? As uh, Rick Cook was saying that existing materials, existing processes are used, but combined in a new way, different way, some some way that are, they are more productive. And how do we strengthen that within the industry? Because I think those questions are essential for us to know because it's not, and, and again, that's not about throwing things away remember the barn that was disassembled for the house. So, and I, I keep that in mind all the time. And so, so I think those are the interesting things. And I think the fact that Michael um, is, is um, teaching uh, an architecture school and uh, he is not teaching the old way So that's gonna be a bunch of students that will come out of Harvard and uh, will ask some questions, which is very, very interesting to me, because uh, first of all, uh, it's, I mean, I don't know how anybody could listen to Michael and not say, oh my God, this guy knows something. And so, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to that because there are many of them. I think they're about to graduate, and what happens to them, where, where they end up, they'll probably end up at Mass Design, or uh, you know, or places where where they can uh, begin to understand that they can do something. And I think because the, I mean, I love the Greta Thunberg generation because, you know, they're not giving up. And uh, they are keeping, uh, you know, financiers feet to the fire, and rightfully so, rightfully so. And I think architecture should be one of those things that is supportive to human life, but not just human life, natural life. And you know why? Because the natural life, the studies of natural life now have grown so sophisticated, so interesting. I mean, who ever thought a couple of years ago that we would find out that trees talk to each other, that trees share nutrition with each other? We just cut them down. You needed furniture, cut them down. Well, I'm sorry. Now we know better, and uh, that's going to be a different idea how we use wood, how we use uh, you know the materials that we use. And I think those are questions that fascinate me because. Those are when you ask questions that you don't know the answer to, but you're saying, couldn't we do this? Shouldn't we do that? Can what is it that we have to do to tweak this material? That to me could be done on so many levels because that will lead to some very very interesting new ideas without trying to do the big elegant messian building that is everywhere on earth and is uh, is the biggest carbon offender
0: Ah, and susan I, it's it's amazing listening to you because i feel like you're at, on some level you're just you're just telling us how you how you're thinking about sort of various things going on in the world but everything that you say is so inspiring <laughs> it's such a like it's such a motivator um and uh yeah it's uh, it's been such a pleasure we have we are out of time and um and i and everything that you were just saying just now has gotten me you know um thinking about so many new things that I I hope everyone else listening to the podcast feels the same way that this is kind of a, a wonderful note to end on to have this question about this point from Susan about asking questions that you don't know the answers to. It's just wonderful. So thank you, Susan. Thank you for being with us. I wish we had more time, but this has been amazing.
2: Thank you. Yeah, yeah,
1: Susan, it's so great to have you. I'm just so delighted. And I also wanted to say for anyone, because this, there, obviously we touched up so many topics that could have gone so much farther. I just wanted to give a little shout out to this book called Sanazi Design Advocate, if anyone's interested in more of your writings from over the years and also um, commentary from a bunch of people in the design world about your way of synthesizing everything at Metropolis and all that that has meant. Um, There are many interesting voices in there beyond just yours as well,
2: um, but so much of your writing. So I just had to give that little plug there.
0: (laughs) Thank you for doing
2: that. It has my Hungarian uh, pioneer uh, picture on the cover. That's right. (laughs) Also fantastic. (laughs) It's a great picture. The world's map.
0: (laughs) And I was. Oh, yeah, that's true. We heard that story, Susan. That will be a good story for another day or a good story for it it's in the book, um, Indeed. but yes. Okay, well, we have to wrap up. Um, thank you so much again, Susan. Uh, that is it for us this week on the Design the Future podcast. Thanks to you all for listening. Uh, please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.